And so we've been talking about the path the last number of weeks. But, and I would like to talk about it tonight, but I, I don't want to go through each piece. But I would like to talk a little bit more in a broader sense about the path. And if you read the, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the sutta about the end of the Buddha's life, um, it's very striking. He has a sense of knowing that he's going to die in a certain time. And he's taught for 45 years, walked all over India and Nepal, teaching the Dharma. And he has followers who have uh, monasteries and live all over that area. And he goes to say goodbye to them, basically. And he goes from place to place or town to town or village to village, monastery to monastery. And he says goodbye in a very Buddhist way. It's not very, it's not like a big emotional goodbye or anything, but it, it's really that he, he, he's, he continues the teaching because he keeps emphasizing what's most important, most pertinent. And he does it in this way. You'll see the phrase, he goes from to each place to say goodbye, and he says, and there's this phrase where it says, this is morality, <clears throat> this is concentration. You have to excuse me, I'm definitely sick, and my voice, I taught all day yesterday here in San Francisco, and I am losing it a little bit. So he goes from place to place, and he says, this is morality, this is concentration, this is wisdom. And that, that's how he says goodbye. And that's his final teaching. And when you hear this, what you're hearing are the three baskets of the Eightfold Noble Path. That there's a basket of, of morality or ethical conduct that supports awakening. That there are the contemplative practices of mindfulness and concentration that deepen insight. And then there's the uh, basket of wisdom, of understanding, of realization. And if you look back, if you go back in the scriptures, in the suttas, and if you go back to the night of the enlightenment, the centerpiece of his awakening are the four truths, the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, that there's a cause to suffering, that there's um, cessation of suffering, or freedom from suffering, and that there's a path that leads to freedom. And from the night of his enlightenment, he's, uh, it's said that he enjoys the blessings of awakening for a while. He sits and walks, and it takes him a little while before he decides to teach. He's not even sure about whether people will understand and he's encouraged by one of the Brahma gods comes and encourages him. And at that point, he sets out teaching, and he teaches the Four Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. This could be a very short talk tonight. I want to warn you. <laughs> <clears throat> and so he offered the path over the 45 years of his teaching, that there is this path that leads to awakening, a path to freedom. And he described, the, described his discovery in this way. He said, just as if one traveling through the forest should see an ancient path 
traversed by those of former days. And going along it, one should see an ancient city having gardens, groves, pools. And that city came to be restored so that it became prosperous and flourishing. Even so, I have seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of former times. The noble eightfold path, that is right view, sometimes called right understanding, right intention, sometimes called right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, the morality, ethical conduct basket of the path, and then right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, the contemplative or the practice basket of the path. He said, along that ancient path I have gone, and going along it, I have come to fully comprehend the way going to the ceasing of aging and death, one of his many metaphors for freedom. And so I'd like to talk about this path, this ancient path, traversed by the enlightened ones of former times. And I'd like to talk about it, as I said, broadly. I don't, I'm not going to go so much into each piece of the path, which is, could be a whole talk or, or more for each piece. Often, spiritual life is spoken of as a path or a way. Buddhism is sometimes called the great way. Thank you, people are giving me gifts of uh, Ricolas here. Dana. Um, um, so sometimes Buddhism itself is called the great way. And it's a helpful metaphor, the metaphor of a path or a way. Because it lets us know, as the Buddha described so beautifully, that there's a way through the travails of human life, through the difficulty of human life, through the confusion of human life that has been walked by others. That the path is already, the ground has been cleared by those who've come before us walking this path. And in the biography of the Buddha by Karen Armstrong, she describes the Buddha's awakening as characterized by this rediscovery. <clears throat> That, that the path was not his, his discovery, it was a rediscovery. It was not something he invented or created. Um, that it was taught by previous Buddhas and the knowledge had faded over the eons. And she writes, Gautama insisted that this insight was simply a statement of things as they really are. The path was written into the very structure of existence. It was, therefore, the Dharma, the truth, par excellence, because it elucidated the fundamental principles that govern the life of the cosmos. That the path itself is inherent in reality when one sees clearly. And so when we enter the path, we enter through the power and through the grace of those who've come before us those who have preceded us. And I like to say that. I like to remind myself of that. And I hope to remind you, even if you don't know it, that in some sense, as we sit here, we sit here in a stream of Dharma that isn't really of our own making. It's already here. 
that's that that stream, that force, that movement, that um, that's been here now for some twenty six hundred years in the form or the articulation of the Buddha Dharma. That we're sitting in that energy, in that um, love, in that passion, in that um, 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 great care that people have brought and struggled and realized the Dharma. And, the, and I find it helpful because often there's a kind of idealization or an imagination about what those people were like. And you might consider that they might have been just like you. That they, men and women, looking, sincere, maybe confused at times, maybe hungry for the truth at times, and then willing to, willing to practice, willing to look, willing to explore, willing to see what is this? What is this human experience? What is, what is this really about? <clears throat> so there's a path that's been walked by others, and we don't have to create it. We don't have to recreate the path. But we do have to walk the path. And that's very clear. And the Buddha said it over and over again. Make, make of thine own self a light. That each of us needs to examine, look deeply, practice, and investigate this reality, the reality of suffering, the reality of freedom from suffering. <clears throat> now, when we talk about path, there's some drawbacks to that metaphor. One drawback, it's a very linear, it's got a very linear groove in my mind. You know, a path goes from here to there, here to there, that's what a path does. And a more literal translation is that it's a noble path of eight limbs. And I like that. I like the image of the limbs of a tree of the rooted in the reality of now and expanding outward. That the path is rooted, it's inherent in the cosmos, and it opens outward like a tree. Or another um, image that I find very helpful is this image. I'm going to I'll hold it up. I hope you can see it. It's the Dharma wheel. And the wheel of the Dharma, there's a kind of indentation here, which often will be actually empty. And then the Dharma goes out in every direction. And um, this is a little aside, but originally there were no images of the Buddha. There were no Buddha rupas like this. The Buddha said, don't make any images of me. There were no images of him for some 500 years until the Greeks came around. The Greeks loved statues. So they started making statues of the Buddha. But this was the original image of the teaching of the Buddha, was the Dharma wheel. And so I think it's a, and the Dharma wheel, as you notice, has eight spokes that, that signify the eight limbs of the path. So I think it's a really lovely way to think about the path instead of linearly, which can seem kind of narrow or one-dimensional, but see that the path goes in every direction. It goes into every part of our life. It's not just one part. It's not just, oh, the spiritual part of our life. That, that may not be 
the right understanding, but the understanding that the Dharma is our life. <clears throat> One of the um, quotes that I like very much is from Zen Master Dogen, who says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or to relax the sense of self. And to forget the self is to be awakened by all things. And I like that because it points to where the Dharma is, to where the path is. So it's an idea of a path that goes somewhere or a path that goes in all directions or that maybe the path is right here, that to study the Buddha way is to study what's here. So not a path so much in terms of coming and going, but a path in terms of studying the alchemical reality of the four truths, that there's suffering in this human life, that there's causes of suffering, that there's freedom from suffering, and that there are ways, there's a way, a skillful means to realize that freedom. And those four truths sit right here. That in fact, um, the truths are not um, prescriptions. They're not something for you to believe. They're much more an, an interactive alchemy. Um, there's, there's, um, the truths are often taught with an encouragement. And so the encouragement or an action um, is for the first truth, for suffering, is to understand suffering, is to understand it. Then the second um, truth, uh, which is the cause of suffering, the action or the encouragement is to release the cause of suffering. And the third truth, that there's freedom or cessation from suffering, the action, the encouragement, is to realize that cessation, to realize freedom. And the fourth truth of the path is to cultivate it in every aspect of our lives. And, in, and we actualize that alchemy over and over again in this experience, in this human experience. So in actualizing the process the alchemy of the four truths, then we see that the call to a path is a call to ourselves, is a call to our direct experience, is a call to our lives as a path. And recognizing that we're called, or recognizing that we are already called to the path, that you're here means you're already called. And the call is not from me, or not from the Buddha or Kuan Yin. The call is from you. The call is what brought you here. This is from Hamid Ali, who said, The desire for freedom, for liberation, enlightenment, self-realization, inner development, whatever it is called, is not a response to a call from outside of you. The search is an intimately personal interest in your own situation. And, the, and it shows itself as a questioning of the disharmony 
or the dukkha, the suffering, one lives in. The stirring must come from you, from your depths. You can use a system to help you, but ultimately it is your life, your quest. The path is you, your heart and your mind. The quest does not bring about an improvement or a perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and a wisdom. And this understanding of the path is echoed by Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah said it this way, he said, traditionally the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors, these eight sense doors, these eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. Isn't that nice? It's right here, and all the dharmas will be revealed. He says, the heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. And here's a, this is really nice. He says, do not try to become anything. What a relief. <laughs> do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. Be with things as they are. Indraji, who was Joseph Goldstein's teacher, he used to say, the whole path sits here, and he would point to you. <clears throat> so, if we, get a, if we can take that view, at least for the moment, that there is no path separate from ourselves, then I think we can really talk about the path. Now, when we consider the path of right view and right intention and right concentration, mindfulness, effort, speech, action, livelihood, these different areas of life that um, the Buddha asks us to pay attention to or to cultivate uh, or to uh, realize. What do you hear that, that ties them all together? There we go. Could you say it a little louder? Right. 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 Right understanding. Right livelihood. Um, I think it's helpful if we really reflect a little bit about the word right, about what does that mean. Um, the, the Pali word is sama, and it's actually translated a lot of different ways now. When I grew up in the Dharma, and as a young man practicing, basically everybody always said right, right speech or right mindfulness. But now I've heard translations like true or uh, authentic. Stephen Batchelor likes to use that term, authentic mindfulness, authentic speech, authentic understanding. Um, upright, direct, direct understanding, direct mindfulness. 
Um, mostly at Spirit Rock, you'll often hear the term wise, wise speech, wise understanding. And I, I think all of these translations are good. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a really lovely way of speaking about this that I think is helpful. He says, right or wrong are neither moral judgments nor arbitrary standards imposed from outside. Through our own awareness, we discover what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. And so that, I find, also a very helpful way to think about the word right, meaning speech that's beneficial or action that's beneficial or understanding that's beneficial. Learning to live, learning to uh, center our life in a way that's beneficial to ourselves and to everybody else, to the whole world. Now, again, I grew up with the word right, so it's the word I use. I, li- I still like the word right, and I like it even more after I looked it up in the dictionary. Because there's a few um, ways it's talked about that I think are helpful for us to consider in terms of our practice, in terms of how we might think about um, right concentration or right livelihood. So one way is um, that it's talked about, it's said in the OED, uh, of a way or a course, direct, going straight towards its destination, appropriate, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. And this is a really interesting way to think about right. What's appropriate? Not appropriate based on some prescription. Not appropriate based on... uh, some idea that we got when we were children or from society or from somebody else, but actually an appropriateness that's based on living very deeply in the present moment and being in touch with the living reality of now so that our response emerges quite naturally from the moment. And the example, one example I like to give is about compassion. Sometimes people People often think, oh, I have to be compassionate, or I have to try and be more compassionate. And, uh, and often with that will be a conscious or unconscious number of ideas about how that should look, what compassion should look like. And I don't, I don't know, maybe that's helpful, maybe. But I think there's a compassion that arises quite naturally when we're here, when we're present, when we're awake, when we're open, when our heart is un tangled or unbound, that compassion is part of our nature. And compassion arises um, as an expression of freedom. And so if somebody falls down, you reach out and you pick them up. Sometimes. But sometimes you don't. Because sometimes maybe it's a one-year-old who's trying to learn to stand up and they and they stand up and they fall down and stand up and fall down. And if you pick them up every time, they wouldn't learn how to stand up. And it wouldn't actually be compassionate to pick them up each time. And so I'm, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that there may be a deeper place where compassion comes from that is, uh, that is an expression of who we are, that is an expression of the awakened heart. And that there may be an appropriateness that arises as we find ourselves more and more rooted in the moment, in the reality of now. Not bound by our ideas, our beliefs, our conceptions, 
our cognition. But here, I, I have a, a, an example I like to give about this, which is from Ajahn Jimnian. And from, for those of you who don't know Ajahn Jimnian, he comes usually once a year and teaches here for a week or more. And he's probably about 67 now or so, Ajahn Jimnian. And he's been practicing since he was five. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's a beautiful being, just a delight to be with and very wise. And um, he, he, you don't actually sit a lot with Ajahn Jimnian because he likes to talk and he tells these stories and he, he gives teachings. And so it's more like hanging out with Ajahn Jimnian until you say, could you stop a little, please, Ajahn, and could we sit for a, a half an hour? Because he, he's got a lot of energy, Ajahn Jimnian, a lot of energy. And he told this story a couple of years ago that I, I think is a beautiful story of this kind of appropriate response. Um, Actually, I'm going to back it up. I'm going to tell you a different story, which is from the Zen tradition, because it, it, it'll help you understand why I'm saying this. There's a, a story in the Zen tradition where uh, the student asks the teacher, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And the teacher responds, an appropriate response. <laughs> and that's not often the, re- the answer you'll get. Most people say, oh, enlightenment, or liberation, or freedom, or wholeness, or healing. Or... But the Zen teacher says an appropriate response. And I think that's a beautiful understanding that when we're here, when we're present, something can respond. That's not just me or my idea of who I am or my belief or my memory or the conditioning around who we are, but something more essential responds. And so Ajahn Jumnian told the story about having his forest monastery in the middle of the war between the leftist guerrillas and the army. And neither side liked him. Both sides thought he was the enemy a little bit and threatened to kill him. And, you know, it was the, it was the late 60s. There was a lot of um, leftist activity in Thailand. And at one point, he got a message from somebody that the rebel commander was going to come with a contingent of soldiers uh, and, and kill him that night. And he said in his... Ajahn Jumnian way. He said, well, he thought about it. He thought, well, he could die. That wasn't a problem. But it wouldn't be good karma for the rebel commander to kill him. <laughs> so he thought he, he wouldn't let him do that. So he thought, well, where should he go? You know, where do you go? He said, well, he's coming here. I'll go to his house. <laughs> this is true. And he did. And he snuck into the village, which was a, you know, kind of a leftist you know, rebel-held area, and he knocked on the door of the man's house, and the woman, his wife, opened the door and said, what are you doing here? He said, I've come to teach you the Dharma, and people in Thailand are very polite, and she said, okay, come in, and, and he said, well, tell some of your neighbors to come, and it was evening, and some of the neighbors came, and he taught and talked to them, and he's, he's a little bit, um, he's very charming, and um, <laughs> He won them over easily, and he spent the night there. And the rebel commander searched the monastery, came and couldn't find him. 
And, and he said in the morning, he, he thought about it, he said, well, now he should go talk to him. And he went back to the monastery, the rebel commander was still there, and he, he, he was wearing clothes that kind of hid him, and he walked up and he tapped him on the shoulder, and the guy turned around and he said, where have you been? And Ajahn Jumnian, you know, right speech, he said, I've been at your house. <laughs> and he said, well, what, what were you doing there? He said, I was teaching the Dharma, and, and when I, teach the, I taught the Dharma to your family, and so now your family is my family. And he said, and Ajahn Jumnian said to him, he said, but don't worry, your wife is still your wife. <laughs> and, and he said the rebel commander laughed. He laughed when he did that, and he said he knew he had him then. <laughs> and and he, he had, um, that was it. There was no more threat from the leftists after that. And I, I love this story. I couldn't believe it when he told the story, but I love it because it's so outside the box, right? I mean, I mean it's totally outside the box. And appropriate response is not bound by any box. That it's in the lived moment. One can respond with creativity, intelligence, imagination, passion, uh, kindness, love, wisdom. And it can take any form. So right meaning appropriate, answering exactly what is needed. Right also means to recover one's equilibrium. And I think this is an important or helpful way to consider right um, in terms of speech or action or concentration. That um, writing a boat means, you know, when it goes a little too far to the left, then we write it. We bring it more into the center again. Or if it goes too far to the, r- to the right, now we write we it. We bring it to the center. We learn to find our balance and so that the, the path becomes not a rigid uh, way of being, but an alive way where we make mistakes, actually, and we learn from them, or we discover things, and we keep moving in a very alive, real way, not in some artificial, believed, supposed to, imagined way, that the Dharma becomes a living reality that we live, not that somebody tells us how to do it. And so beginning to discover the optimal relationship with life to realize awakening. This is right as a process, as a living process. And then the the last definition that I found in the OED that I thought was really beautiful is that right means to bring into accordance with the truth. To bring into accordance with the truth. With truth. So bringing our speech or our mindfulness or our effort or our work in accordance with the truth, in accordance with the Dharma. Dharma means truth. It's one of the definitions. Bringing our lives in, in balance, in accordance with the way things are, with the reality of this ephemeral, um, transient, um, transparent world that we, we live in and that we are. From Bhikkhu Bodhi, he said, the path brings the teachings to life. 
They translate the Dharma from a collection of abstract formulas into a continually unfolding disclosure of truth. A continually unfolding disclosure of truth. A living Dharma. Not limited by ideas or form or technique. The whole Dharma sits here in this aliveness. Examine it, discover it, practice it. Letting the various limbs of the path support us in our attempt to bring our understanding and, and our whole life in accordance with the truth. One way I think about it as, is as a commitment that we commit to a path. Or another way we could say it is we devote ourselves to a path, or we dedicate ourselves to the path. But as we've been speaking, we're not dedicating ourselves to some path out there. All these symbols represent you, whether it's Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin or the Buddha. They all represent the living Dharma that sits in your seat. And the commitment to the path is a commitment to that truth of who you are in essence. A commitment to discover it, to realize it, to understand it, to express it, to embody it. To bring it, as it's said in the Zen tradition, the the Bodhisattva returns from the mountaintop with bliss-bestowing hands or gift-bestowing hands bringing that realization into the world based on the commitment to the Dharma and the commitment to the truth. This is from Ken Welber. He says, spiritual practice is not something we do for 20 minutes a day or for two hours a day. It's not something we do once a day in the morning or once a week on Monday evenings. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. Is that worth hearing again? He says, spiritual practice is not something we do 20 minutes a day or once a day or once a week. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation and their fruit. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. So why is the orientation towards truth important? Why is it valuable? Why, why might it be essential? Our default, our default in these human beings is to orient towards safety and security. It's a very natural movement for us. It's 
part of our animal nature. If you notice animals, if you really watch animals, mostly they're looking for food, shelter, and to not feel fear. Safety, security, survival. Very natural. And we have that in us. It's part of what was in the, our DNA a bit. <clears throat> and it's good to get. Go ahead. Get as much safety and security as you can get. Comfort, you know. Even, even, even in spiritual practice, you'll notice the orientation. Even in, excuse me, formal meditation practice. Um, you know, I, I, I had to try out three pillows tonight to see which one really felt right. Which one felt really comfy and good. And, you know, and it's okay. I got the best pillow. It's really, it's been great. I'm really happy with the pillow. Get the best pillow you can get. But if you count on that for true security, for true comfort, for true safety, it may fall short. It will fall short. <clears throat> it's seductive the sense of security or the sense of comfort. Um, it may be deceptive. It may be very deceptive in that we keep looking for it in places where it's not actually there, in things, in other people, in trying to make reality to fit our ideas or our beliefs or our moods. Reality doesn't work that way. <clears throat> Comfort's not bad. Security's not bad. Safety's not bad. <clears throat> but it's not where true happiness will be found in those relative comforts and securities. And as we begin to let the truth or the Dharma become the center of our life, we discover a paradox that security is not ultimately based on conditions. Security is not based on conditions. Conditions are nice. I don't knock conditions at all. I like them. I like good conditions. But true refuge, true happiness, true freedom is found in learning how to be with the reality of the way things are, with the truth of the way things are, now and now and now and now and now. And you know, sometimes I say that and people get really nervous. They think that means passivity. That being with the way things are mean then, then we're just going to let everything happen. Well, in some, some way we are going to let everything happen, but it doesn't mean we can't respond like Ajahn Jumnian responded in many different ways. But we can respond more and more skillfully, appropriately, if we're actually here. If we're actually here in touch with the way things actually are. And so that means opening to suffering, being with suffering, being with difficulty, being with what it is to be a human being. Because there is difficulty, pain, distress, dis-ease, insubstantiality in this realm. This characterizes the human realm. It's not all it is, but it's one of the characteristics of the human realm is this kind of dukkha, 
or stress or dis-ease. And as Ajahn Chah said, he said, to run from suffering is to run towards it. And there's this beautiful paradox that's articulated in Buddhism of there's the suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to less suffering. So if we learn that we can trust the truth, the truth of the way things are, even when we don't like the truth of the way things are, even when it might not make us happy or may not be what we think is it's supposed to be, life's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be, if we, learn, if we begin to learn that we can trust it because it is the way it is now, for a moment, if we can trust it in its temporality, in its changing, evolving, unfolding, m- mysterious, magical nature, then we, can, then we can begin to relax here in our life we can begin to be here quite fully. Our life itself will become a continually unfolding expression of the truth, of the Dharma. There's another important benefit to orienting towards truth. It allows us to orient to something beyond ourself. Remember Dogen said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self, or let go of the self, relax. That to orient towards the truth means to orient to something beyond our ideas, our beliefs, our preferences, our likes, our dislikes. And so we don't have to, you don't have to get rid of yourself, okay? Let me relieve you of that idea, please. (laughs) But that we can orient, we can center, we can direct our lives to something beyond that small sense of self, the conditioned sense of self, the habitual sense of self, the I, something beyond the idea of who we think we are. This is from Ashvagosha, who wrote, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require that a person go into homelessness or resign from the world. These are euphemisms for becoming a monastic. Unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's, open one's heart, and to lead a life of awakening. And then whatever you do, whether you're an artisan, or a lawyer, or a doctor, or a school teacher, or a computer programmer, or a masseuse, or whatever it is, or whether you're in the military or the police, wherever you find yourself. He says, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. 
if one lives in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth. And so as we practice, as we investigate, as we begin to contemplate the reality of this ephemeral, temporary, changing, mysterious, magical reality that we call human life, as, as the Dharma begins to, we could say it a few different ways, as it begins to sink into our bones, or the other way to say it, as we begin to realize that it is our bones itself, that our bones themselves are the Dharma, that this flesh and blood, this living reality is an expression of the Dharma, then we can begin to embody the beauty of the Dharma, the truth of the Dharma, in every aspect of our life, with our sila, our ethical conduct, with our samadhi, our concentration and mindfulness, with our wisdom, with our understanding, beginning to see with the eye of wisdom. This is how Ajahn Jumnian always talks. Look at the world, look at reality, look at your life with the eye of wisdom. Some teachers like to talk about it and, and feel it with the heart of compassion and express it with the body of awakening. We bring this whole mysterious arising in alignment with the Dharma, in alignment with the way things are. I'll end with a quote from the Buddha. He said, by your own efforts, by your own efforts, waken yourself, discover yourself, watch yourself and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way. Reflect upon it. Make it your own. Live it. It will always sustain you. Let's sit for a minute, please.